Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Racist and unconstitutional policing in Minneapolis. The lead starts right now. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland laying out a devastating rebuke of the Minneapolis Police Department. The patterns and practices we observed made what happened to George Floyd possible. A multi-year investigation finds systemic abuses and discrimination by police will break down the findings and what it says about equal justice in the United States. Then, guilty on all counts for the man behind the deadliest assault on Jews in U.S. history. A federal jury now turning turns to debating whether the Tree of Life shooter will get the death penalty for taking 11 innocent lives. Plus, only on CNN, relentless fighting in the streets of Sudan. Terrorism turns to genocide as our own Nima al-Bagher documents the atrocities and reports on the disturbing connection between the mercenary group waging war in Ukraine. Welcome to Lead. I'm Alex Marquardt. In today for Jake Tapper. We start today with our national lead, scathing revelations of years of systemic problems in the Minneapolis Police Department, all of which led to the murder of George Floyd, who was killed three years ago by then-Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. Today, a blistering new report released by the U.S. Department of Justice finding the city's police, quote, used excessive and unreasonable force, violated people's First and Fourth Amendment rights, failed to hold officers accountable for their actions, and, in a first-ever finding by the DOJ, engaged in unlawful discrimination against black and Native American people. CNN's Adrian Broadus begins our coverage with some of the startling examples laid out today by Attorney General Merrick Garland. We found that the Minneapolis Police Department routinely uses excessive force. The Attorney General and the Justice Department unleashing a scathing report Friday on Minneapolis police failures, detailing systemic problems leading up to the murder of George Floyd in 2020. The Minneapolis Police Department and the city of Minneapolis engaged in a pattern or practice of conduct that violates the First and Fourth Amendments of the United States Constitution. Three years after Floyd was murdered by a Minneapolis police officer, the DOJ findings reveal multiple examples of racial discrimination, excessive and unlawful use of force, First Amendment violations, and a lack of accountability for officers within the department. Minneapolis Police Chief Brian O'Hara now pledging major improvements. We will change the narrative around policing in this city. But longtime activists say the problems are deeply rooted and need more than transparency. I'm unsure how far the DOJ will go in terms of pulling the curtain back on the horrific behaviors of Minneapolis police officers. As a matter of fact, the city has put out tens of millions of dollars in paying excessive force um, settlement agreements over the years. And this was before George Floyd was killed. The findings, based on hundreds of police body cam videos and incident reports as well as complaints, outlined the use of dangerous techniques and weapons, 
for minor or even, quote, no offenses, including unjustified deadly force, and that the MPD used force to punish people who made officers angry or criticized the police. The mayor admitting the DOJ report echoes complaints the city has heard for years and that there needs to be fundamental change. Our success will be defined by the people of Minneapolis feeling safe. We are not going to stop. The report says Minneapolis police, quote, patrolled neighborhoods differently based on their racial composition and discriminated based on race when searching, handcuffing, or using force against people during stops. MPD stopped black and Native American people nearly six times more often than white people. The DOJ report also pointed to a pattern of racist comments within the Minneapolis Police Department. Local activists are cautiously optimistic the report will not just inspire, but require police to do better. Minneapolis is only a microscope of a huger issue. So what's next? Now the city will be under what's called a consent decree. And that portion is still being negotiated and we're told it could take months, even years before it's fully implemented and rolled out. Alex. All right, Adrian brought us in Minneapolis. Thank you very much for that report. Joining us now to talk more about the ramifications of the DOJ's report of the Minneapolis Police Department is Mark's Cla- Mark Claxton, a former NYPD detective and the director of the Black Law Enforcement Alliance, as well as CNN legal analyst and criminal defense attorney Joey Jackson. Gentlemen, thank you both uh, for joining me today. Joey, I want to ask you first, that consent decree that Adrian uh, just mentioned, which will give the DOJ a more oversight, um, do you think that that will go fast and far enough in terms of overhauling the MPD? Uh, so the direct answer is no, but I don't want to say that this is not a significant development. What do I mean? I mean that we all know what happened to George Floyd. I need not say the despicable conduct that was engaged as to him. So what that led to was this investigation into the patterns and practices. But when you look at the investigation and the pattern of practices, that's significant because it shows that the federal government had a role, took it seriously, uh, did thousands of investigations, looked into the issue of body cams, et cetera, did interviews, looked at documents. The Trump administration had gotten away from that. So that's significant. But now that you have this decree, which is an agreement with the federal government to try to make things better, the issue is it's going to take time. Yes, there will be specific recommendations. They will be overseen. Those recommendations, the issue would be is to try to get the community uh, really their trust back with respect to that being lost because of the police aggression and the police misconduct. There'll be a number of reforms that have to be implemented, but it will take time and we'll see whether it goes far enough. And so ultimately, it'll be an open question, Alex, as to how effective it'll be. And this is not the first time we've seen a a consent decree. Uh, Recently, we've seen them in L.A., Detroit, elsewhere. And and Joey, what has happened? uh, What effect has there been after past consent decrees? You know, I think that if you ask different people, you get different answers. I think that the consistent answer, though, is that we're not doing enough. I think that certainly if you look at the decrees in the areas that you mentioned, it's hard not to say 
that we're still not at a place where we can't be better? Is it an issue where police are stopping African-Americans and other people of color more readily? I think the answer would be yes. Are we in a place where perhaps, uh, you know, there's not as much restraint that could be used? I think the answer many people will find yes. Uh, can we make significant progress and developments in areas of policing such that police can do a better job with communities? The answer would be yes. And so ultimately, it's a good first step. And again, I don't want to, you know, really poo-poo that. It's important. But I think we have to really see what the effect is, what the commitment of the elected officials and the communities are and see how ultimately it's implemented to see whether it has a desired effect, Alex. When we heard the Attorney General Merrick Garland today, he he laid out some examples of the misconduct by the MPD. Um, And one of the examples that he gave, uh, I want to read, it's after MPD officers stopped a group of Somali-American teens, one of the officers said, do you remember what happened in Black Hawk Down, that's the movie, when we killed a bunch of your folk? I'm proud of that. We didn't finish the job over there. If we had, you guys wouldn't be over here right now. Uh, Mark, what's your reaction to that? Well, it's disturbing. It's it's very disturbing, but it points to a larger issue of uh, toxicity within the policing culture itself. Look, Alex, I I think that this uh, investigation, the DOJ investigation, apparently is very substantive, extensive, very detailed uh, and, and, and a necessary uh, move. Uh, but I think it is legitimate to question whether or not in the current environment and the current mode of, of uh, public safety, that uh, whether or not the DOJ has the necessary tools to efficiently investigate these civil rights violations uh, and whether or not they can shift away from the current practice of these protracted investigations that some that take multiple years coming to conclusions that people are, had uh, had made uh, days or hours uh, before the incident that spurred them. Uh, so the question is whether or not the, this is an efficient process and whether or not this process will lead to significant or substantive change and change in the toxicity that exists in police departments. And then the additional question is whether or not we're, we're prepared to move away from the current policing model more towards this uh, multidisciplinary uh, public safety model, which incorporates different disciplines into the, the uh, pro- providing of public safety. All right, Mark Claxton, Joey Jackson, really appreciate your thoughts uh, in the wake of this very important report. Now, also in our Law and Justice lead, guilty verdicts today in the trial over the deadliest anti-Semitic attack in U.S. history. The gunman who killed 11 people at Pittsburgh's Tree of Life synagogue in October of 2018 was convicted of all 63 charges he faced. CNN's Danny Freeman is at the courthouse in Pittsburgh. Uh, Danny, prosecutors now will ask the jury to impose the death penalty. That's right, Alex. This same jury, in just a matter of weeks, will be asked to decide whether or not 50-year-old Robert Bowers will be sentenced to life in prison or be executed. That's what's at stake here. But before I get to that, I want to just illustrate exactly what happened today. As you said, 63 federal charges. Robert Bowers found guilty of all of them, including the 22 capital offenses that we've been talking about so much in this particular case. Uh, The primary capital offenses here, the obstruction, a free exercise of religious beliefs resulting in death, basically the accusation that he killed these 11 Jewish worshipers at the Tree of Life Synagogue back in October of 2018 while they were 
practicing their Jewish faith. The other capital crime there, the use and discharge of a firearm to commit murder during and in relation to a crime of violence and possession of a firearm. Now, Alex, we had a producer, Sarah Boxer, who was inside the actual courtroom when these guilty verdicts were being read aloud. She said that it was so silent you could hear a pin drop. As for Bowers himself, he remained fairly emotionless during that process. And then by the time we got past those initial capital punishment verdicts and towards the, la the latter uh, charges that were read, that's when she could hear some sniffling in that courtroom, some emotion there. Um, it's been a harrowing few weeks of trial and testimony and for some perspective these people who are family members of victims these people who have been survivors of this shooting they've waited four and a half years for this day in court we actually heard from some members of the jewish community a little while ago take a listen to what the president of dor hadash one of the congregations who was impacted that day back in 2018 take a listen to what she had to say i am feeling a sense of relief that after four and a half years, the world has heard again about the horrific acts on October 27, 2018, and the shooter has, is being held accountable for those awful acts. So obviously a tremendous amount of relief from the Jewish community here in Pittsburgh and others as well, but there is some mixed emotion because that, uh, that death penalty phase does loom large and we're going to hear likely more gut-wrenching testimony over the next few weeks. It's going to be difficult, but this community is ready for that. And I'll say that death penalty phase will start on June 26th. Alex? And the head of the Anti-Defamation League telling CNN earlier today that in the past decade, anti-Semitic incidents have gone up some 500%. Danny Freeman in Pittsburgh, thank you very much. Now, Donald Trump's lawyers need security clearances. Two of the men representing the former president reach out to the Justice Department as they work to defend their client in the case centered around the country's top secrets. And how a baby on the House floor led to a new caucus in Congress. But why is it not a bipartisan group? We are back now with our law and justice lead and a new filing by the Justice Department in the Trump classified documents case. Prosecutors are now asking for a protective order over the evidence that will be shared with Trump's lawyers. CNN's Paula Reed now joins me live. Paula, walk us through what this means. So here the special counsel is asking that the non-classified materials that have to be turned over to the defense lawyers as part of discovery that there will be limits on them in their ability to share any of this with the public. What's also interesting is they say, look, even though this is the unclassified stuff that we're talking about here, they say, quote, the materials also include information pertaining to ongoing investigations, the disclosure of which could compromise those investigations and identify uncharged individuals. I think that's a sentence that's going to um, pique a lot of folks' interest. I will also note that in the suggested order, I mean, they, they have a proposal here, uh, that they say has not been opposed by Trump or Walt Nada's uh, lawyers. They say that the defendants, they're talking about former President Trump and his aide, Walt Nada, co-defendant, they shall only have access to these materials under the direct supervision of their lawyers. They cannot retain copies of them, and also any notes that they take on these should be stored securely by their lawyers. So it's not surprising that given the nature of this case, right, retaining materials you're not supposed to have, they, they have concerns here, clearly, about the defendants in this case potentially keeping this sensitive information, uh, taking notes on it, or sharing it in any way. And that has to do with the unclassified yeah. part of this. So much of this is about the classified documents, of course, and we've now confirmed 
that uh, Trump's lawyers have requested security clearances? Yeah, yesterday we heard from the judge who said, look, you guys need security clearances for this case. We know that because, of course, former President Trump is charged with taking 31 classified documents. Some of these were top secret. Some of our most sensitive secrets here. The lawyers who represent him need an act of clearance. So the judge urged them yesterday to get that process started. And they have. They've said they've reached out to the Justice Department to begin that process that could take several weeks. But we also know the former president's legal team is not fully decided. I spoke with the sources earlier today. Could take days, maybe even weeks to pick another lawyer or two to add to this team. And then they'll need their clearances. So this is going to take a little while before they even begin handing over classified discovery. And when you see those 31 documents laid out, just extraordinary levels of classification and secrecy. Yeah. Paula Reed, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Joining me now to discuss former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin and Sarah Matthews, the former White House deputy press secretary under Donald Trump. Thank you both uh, for joining us. Uh, Michael, to you first. As Paula was just mentioning, uh, President Trump, former President Trump, still looking to add another lawyer uh, to his team. How difficult is that going to be for him and how much of a time crunch is it? Well, it's difficult and time is of the essence. It's difficult because of the nature of the client. Donald Trump is not an easy client to represent. You see lawyers leaving because he's not following their advice. Nobody who wants Nobody wants a client who doesn't follow their advice. And it's critical because the judge so far has said, we're going to move quickly here and we need you to get security clearances. Then I'm going to set a schedule and you're going to have to comply with it. And so time is really of the essence for Trump to find someone who can be a Florida-based trial lawyer. Yeah, how much of that time frame is complicated by the fact that this additional lawyer, whenever he or she is named, will also have to get security clearance? If the lawyer doesn't already have a security clearance, because many lawyers have them because of the nature of their practices generally, but if they don't have one, it's a couple of week process. Those forms, which I filled out many times at the Justice Department, are multiple pages long and you have to fill in sort of your life's history for the last 10 years. And then they have to look at make sure you're telling the truth. Yeah, they certainly do. It's a very rigorous process and takes quite a bit of time. Uh, We also heard from the former president on his uh, social media platform uh, earlier today. He wrote, quote, indictment must be immediately withdrawn by the Injustice Department and with apology. Uh, Sarah, of course, you worked alongside the former president. Do you think that he's doing this as a politician running for president or that he genuinely genuinely believes that he did nothing wrong? I think that he jumped in the 2024 race uh, because he knew he was facing legal trouble and he thought it would be a shield for him. And so I do think that now that he's in the race, he's going to try to you know, shift blame, make all these different excuses that this is politicization and the DOJ is being weaponized. But the truth of the matter is, with this case in particular, Donald Trump could have avoided, avoided this indictment altogether had he just listened to his lawyers and given the documents back. This is 100 percent self-inflicted. I mean, in terms of not listening to his lawyers, you're not going to find lawyers who say, go out and bash uh, the lead prosecutor against you. In this case, it's Jack Smith. And on that same social media platform, Truth Social, we've heard Trump talk about Jack Smith, calling him deranged, claiming the indictment was initiated by, quote, misfits, mutants, Marxists and communists. So, Michael, do any of those comments online matter to the judge who will be presiding over this case? I think at some point, if it persists, she's going to call them in and say, like they said to Michael Cohen in the earlier case, cool it. We just don't want to hear all this. Because remember, there's a jury that has to be selected. And if you're poisoning the jury pool, I mean, what Trump doesn't realize, I don't think, is that if he completely poisons the jury pool, 
The prosecutors may say, look, we can't get a fair trial here. Uh, let's move it someplace else. Usually it's the defendant who does that. But if the well is so poisoned by his rhetoric, he may find himself in a different jurisdiction. And Sarah, in, in terms of just stepping back and, and looking at why the former president um, is running to be president again, you know, he would only get four more years. What do you think is really the driving factor here? I do think that he thinks that by running for president that he could potentially pardon himself of any crimes that he may face or convictions for any of these investigations. I mean, you look at it, um, we already have two indictments, potentially more coming down the road. And so he knows that he had legal trouble. And so he's hoping that he can get back to the White House and probably potentially pardon himself and any of his allies surrounding him. Yeah, the case in Georgia, the uh, January 6th case, also being led by Jack Smith, still very much out there and certainly weighing on the former president. Sarah Matthews, Michael Zeldin, thank you both very much. Thanks. Thank you. Now, coming up, we have an exclusive report from Sudan. CNN uncovers atrocities, potential war crimes, and a troubling link to the mercenaries who are waging war in Ukraine. Stay with us. We are back with an exclusive investigation. CNN has uncovered evidence that the Russian mercenary group Wagner is complicit in the prolonged deadly fighting in Sudan by supplying Sudan's Rapid Support Force. It's a paramilitary group also known as the RSF. About two million people have left Sudan since mid-April as the country's humanitarian crisis grows more dire by the day. And although the RSF denies links to Wagner and any involvement in mass rape, CNN verified incidents of rape perpetuated by the RSF, including one captured on video. In the face of the RSF's repeated denials, we feel it is important to broadcast part of that graphic and disturbing video. CNN's Nima Albagar has this exclusive report. The fighting on the streets of Sudan is relentless. Ceasefire after ceasefire has not held. Forces previously accused of genocide returning to a well-worn playbook. Terrorize, expel, and ethnically cleanse. The paramilitary rapid support forces, RSF, are currently engaged in a fight for dominance with Sudan's army. But years before that rivalry spilled blood in Sudan's streets, they were implicated in atrocities in Darfur. Now, once again, Darfur to the west of the country is stalked by the specter of genocide. The damage wrought by these forces, so extensive you can see it from satellite images. This is El Jinena, West Darfur. Hundreds killed, whole districts razed to the ground. And it's not only El Jinena that is burning. This is Andor. And this, Kadumi. On the ground, it looks like this. These scenes sadly familiar in Darfur. 20 years ago, the region descended into genocide. The same RSF leadership in place as their men killed, occupied and raped. Now, once again, women's bodies are part of the field of war. We must warn you, what you're about to see is shocking. This video, filmed at great personal risk, will show a girl, believed to be just 15 years old, being raped. 
The RSF have threatened rape survivors and denied their testimonies, so we feel it necessary to broadcast a small portion of this horrific assault. You see here a man in light-coloured fatigues, matching those worn by the RSF. It's too awful to show in full, but when the phone pans, you see what he's guarding. A man wearing light-coloured fatigues, forcing himself onto the prone girl. CNN verified and geolocated the area where this happened. We're not revealing the exact location in Khartoum to protect our sources and the young girl. This is not an isolated incident. We received and reviewed dozens of cases where women say they were raped by RSF soldiers, identifying them by their light-colored fatigues and the insignia on their right shoulders. So, who is complicit in this pain? The RSF's key ally, the notorious Russian mercenary group Wagner, has been sustaining their fight and providing the impetus to slaughter innocent people by supplying arms. We're going to show you how. This is an Aleutian 76 cargo plane operated by Wagner sitting at a Libyan airbase. A previous CNN investigation exposed how this Russian cargo plane was providing the RSF with deadly arms from a Russian naval base in Latakia, Syria, via Wagner-controlled bases in Libya. This pattern starts just days before the war begins in Sudan. Libya, Syria, and back. And it picks up pace. What's interesting here is the new focus on the city where it goes next, Bangui, the capital of the Central African Republic. After our exposure of the Libya route, a route directly from the Central African Republic into Darfur became crucial for the RSF. Eyewitnesses at key transit points and intelligence active in the region told CNN arms and supplies from this Aleutian transported overland using the truck captured here and others like it. First to a Wagner base in Birao and then into South Darfur to an RSF base in Um Umdafuq. Wagner putting their thumb on the scales here to secure access to Sudan's resources through Darfur, creating chaos and terror, helping tip the balance of power in their war in Ukraine, whatever the cost. And Nima Al-Bagher joins me now. Nima, just an extraordinarily harrowing report. Um, As we've just seen, the world has been in a very similar moment before, watching the same forces commit similar atrocities in this very same area. So what could the U.S. and other countries be doing? Well, what we're hearing from so many Sudanese is that the U.S. could begin by using the, the correct language. Until we shared our findings with the State Department, they had been referring to these violent assaults and rapes as the actions of armed actors, even though most of the recorded testimony pointed directly to the RSF. And that has been a real cause of fear for so many Sudanese because they believe it, it shows that the world doesn't have the appetite to hold the necessary actors accountable. And you saw there in our reporting that it's not just about what's happening in Sudan, it's about how this is going to impact U.S. national interests, global interests. The war in Ukraine, Wagner continues, Russian mercenaries continue to sustain this fight, to allow them to exploit in the future further Sudan's natural resources. This is in no one's interest. And I think that only further baffles so many Sudanese as to why the U.S. has not had 
a stronger position. And when I say baffles, I, 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 I'm worried I'm not actually representing it accurately. So many of those we're speaking to are really heartbroken that the U.S. and the international community has not been able, has, has seemed unwilling to do more to stop what's being done to them. And in the absence of that, Sudanese, like the, the ones who filmed that video at huge risk, are risking their lives to save themselves and each other, Alex. Huge risk as uh, Wagner's presence continues to spread. Uh, Namela Bagger with her exclusive reporting uh, from inside Sudan. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. Now, Putin says it is theoretically possible that Russia could use nuclear weapons. So how worried should we be? Russian President Vladimir Putin says that a first batch of Russian tactical nuclear weapons has arrived in Belarus. The country is one of Russia's closest allies in this war and has facilitated Putin's initial invasion of Ukraine. CNN Sam Kiley now joins us live from the Ukrainian capital of Kiev. Sam, what are Ukrainian officials saying about these nuclear weapons? Well, this is once again, in their view, uh, nuclear blackmail being uh, deployed uh, even closer, uh, even more threateningly going into Belarus. Now, remember, of course, uh, Ukraine has a long border with Russia. So tactical nuclear weapons in Russia, tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus uh, doesn't make a great deal of difference to the Ukrainians. What it does do is uh, threaten uh, Baltic states, NATO partners, uh, and it's that, that is really the purpose behind this. It is uh, Vladimir Putin's way of saying, and he did spell it out today, saying if our territorial integrity, our sovereignty or the future of the Russian Federation is threatened, he could theoretically, he said, imagine a situation in which these nuclear weapons were used. Uh, now, his counterpart in Belarus, Lukashenko, said the size of these weapons are two to three times the size of the weapons used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So these are not idle threats. And what they're doing is renuclearizing formerly denuclearized states like uh, Belarus as part of their effort to put pressure on Ukraine, to, on, on NATO to dial back on the support that Ukraine is getting, particularly in the light of this counteroffensive, Alex, that is ongoing. NATO partners have just announced more uh, surface-to-air missiles to protect troops against uh, the Russian dominance in the air, whilst perhaps buying time, whilst the F-16s, uh, which are now looking likely to be uh, given to Ukraine uh, before they can come online, they need the protections to prosecute this uh, assaults that they're putting in. Now, all of that adds up to a concern on the Russian side that there could be a Ukrainian breakthrough and a collapse of the Russian armed forces. That's certainly the Ukrainian agenda. And if that were to happen, Putin wants to be able to threaten the world with nuclear catastrophe. Alex? Certainly not idle threats, certainly nerve-wracking. Sam Kiley in Kiev. thank you very much. A tornado ravages a Texas town as millions more Americans are under alert for severe storms. What you need to know, that's next. Over 10 million people here in the United States are now under severe thunderstorm watches. One line of storms moving through the big cities of the Northeast as another moves through Arkansas into Tennessee. And then in Texas, crews are cleaning up after devastating tornadoes. CNN's Lucy Kafanoff is on the ground talking to storm victims. We have major damage in town. Oh, my God. Terrifying video of a deadly tornado captured by storm chasers. Oh, my God. As the powerful twister leveled much of the small town of Periton, Texas, 
killing at least three, sending up to 100 people to the hospital. It was just barely sprinkling, and all of a sudden the tornado formed and it just dropped on us. It came out of nowhere. And there was no sirens, no time to get to a shelter. There was a time where I thought that I was going to die. Jamie James's home is still standing, but nearly everything around it is destroyed. The community of roughly 8,000 residents is left in shambles. And this was an immensely powerful tornado. Take a look over there. That vehicle was flipped completely on its roof, slammed into the building. From the brick structures on Main Street to mobile homes completely flattened. Total devastation. This cell phone tower snapped in half. Transmission lines have sustained damage, and many power lines are down in the town, the energy company says. I kind of feel like it was a, almost a worst-case scenario. The Weather Service gives notice as quickly as it can, but one storm chaser on the ground said this storm didn't look particularly dangerous at first. I never heard sirens, and the reason why is when they issued the tornado warning, the tornado was already in town doing damage, and the power had obviously been cut to the town. Excel Energy says the city's power facilities were shut off for safety purposes. Residents begin to pick up the pieces. The Red Cross is mobilizing teams to offer support on the ground, and the local high school is opening its doors to help. We moved pretty quickly to try to make this uh, a safe haven for people to get to. The loss is unthinkable. I don't, I don't think you can put it really into words. Jamie James tells us one of the women who lost her life in the storm would have been out here helping in the recovery. She would always help me carry the groceries out. And she would give me a big old hug. She served people, friendly, hugging people like me who needed it so bad. So many good people in this town. And Alex, that is Main Street. This area took a direct hit. You can see the pile of rubble, rubble here. The cleanup crews have been out here all day, moving the down power lines, trying to get this town back together. But for this small community, more than 100 people, homeless, dozens injured, three dead, including, we're now learning, an 11-year-old. The emotional scars will take a lot longer to heal from. Alex? Just extraordinary scenes. Our thoughts, of course, with everyone affected. Lucy Kafanoff in Perrytown, Texas. Thank you very much for that report. It is daddy daycare in the people's house. How changing a diaper in Congress brought a group of fathers together. One thing that lawmakers on the Hill agree on is recognizing dads. Just in time for this weekend, the Senate unanimously passed a resolution recognizing Father's Day and the role that dads have in improving life for moms and children. Jake Tapper now profiles a group of dads in the House who are pushing legislation to help families. It's a common question asked by parents all across the United States. Who is going to watch the baby? And it's one that the Congressional Dads Caucus aims to address head on. McCarthy. During the House Speaker votes back in January, California Congressman Jimmy Gomez was doing two jobs at once, congressman and dad. While Republicans were looking for votes for McCarthy, Gomez was looking for a changing table for his four-month-old son, Hodge. During the speaker's vote, I just changed them on the floor in the, in the Democratic cloakroom. And it was fine, but, you know, a lot of people don't have access to the Democratic cloakroom. Jeffries. And after this viral moment on the House floor, the Congressional Dads Caucus was born. The caucus says it will push for policies that support working families, like expanding paid family leave or making child care more affordable or increasing the child tax credit. I think that the Dads Caucus is um, 
creating a dialogue. What's the role of dads uh, in, in the workplace? What's the role of dads in the household? Um, and how do you combat some of those, uh, I would say, outdated notions that dads shouldn't step up and do their part? The U.S. and Papua New Guinea and a handful of small island nations are the only ones in the world that do not guarantee paid family leave. The Family and Medical Leave Act became law in the U.S. 30 years ago, but it does not guarantee paid, job-protected leave for workers. Today, only one in four workers in the U.S. has access to paid family leave, and lower-income workers are not surprisingly hit the hardest. The Congressional Dads Caucus now has 30 Democratic members, including Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib. But it has failed to gain bipartisan support in the House. I've written more bills with Republicans than any Democrat in the country, not by compromising values, but by trying to find common ground. And if there's one area of common ground that should exist, it's caring about our kids and caring about our families. Republicans have long opposed a government-funded paid leave program. And Republicans tend to favor tax credits and policies that will not increase spending. One Republican criticized the Dad's Caucus, saying, quote, Fathers care about keeping their kids safe. They care about putting food on the table for the families and keeping a roof over their heads. They don't just care about liberal policy priorities. If they wanted this caucus to actually be taken seriously, they would have made it bipartisan, like almost every other caucus in the House is. The Congressional Dads Caucus has also taken issue with the Parents' Bill of Rights, a Republican education bill that requires public schools to share their material with parents. The Dads Caucus argues this takes away from the real problems that families face. While the Dads Caucus advocates for policies they say will help American families, they're also hoping to add a few more changing tables in the Capitol complex for themselves. Changing your daughter on the restroom is not a Republican or Democratic issue, right? It's something that, whether you're a Republican dad or a Democratic dad, it's something that we should all be able to push for. And our thanks to Jake for that report. And we do wish all dads a very happy Father's Day. And speaking of Sunday, be sure to join Jake for State of the Union. He'll be talking with the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Republican Congressman Mike Turner. That's at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern on Sunday. I'm Alex Marquardt. Thank you so much for joining me. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 